0: You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace.
1: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. My name is Douglas Paul. I'm vice president for studies, and I run the Asia program here. And with me on the platform, as you can see, are my esteemed colleagues, uh, Yukon Huang, who is our uh, chief economic watcher in uh, Carnegie uh, in China, and Michael Swain, who is everybody's favorite grand strategist and follows the military. Um, I'm very pleased you would take the time to come and join us today. Um, I'd like to ask you if you would please turn off your cell phones and other things that might go off in the night. We have the Bluetooth system we have here is kind of sensitive to it, so when we get into the Q&A, it might be difficult if you don't turn them off. Um, the second, uh, the, uh, this meeting was really called uh, well in advance of the National People's Congress and... <coughs> Chinese People's Political Consultative Congress, the so-called two meetings, or Lianghui, um, thinking that there's probably something that would be said that's worth taking note of, but probably not that much, but we ought to take note of it nonetheless, and, and give my, my wonderful colleagues a chance to talk about what's always been interesting, which is Chinese rate of growth, and is it up or down? And the Chinese military budget, is it up? Yeah. <laughs> Never mind, down. And, um, and but this has uh, surprisingly turned out to be uh, a lianghui about something else entirely, it seems. Yes, the party did conduct its uh, uh, well-managed uh, rubber stamp, People's Congress f- uh, procedures. Wen Bao gave his val- valedictory speech on economic policy and political reform. At least, it's a speech about political reform. And uh, we had the display of the normal a uh, number of regional party or uh, NPC or CPPCC committees meeting to talk about their the specific areas, challenges, opportunities. Um, but overall, of this has been the the affair of Boisilai and his his downfall. Uh, and this, I suspect, will in some way be called the Boisilai NPC someday as people write the history. Uh, it has been a most extraordinary experience. I think that it represents um, the biggest uh, crisis faced by the Chinese uh, Communist Party since 1989. I say that because uh, we haven't had the appearance of an overt split within the leadership since 1989. And of course, it's been an article of faith since then that it should never be allowed to happen again, because it led to such a deep threat to the Communist Party's rule uh, in the streets of Tiananmen and elsewhere in China in in 1989. Um, The episode unfolded in an extremely um, murky way and it's both still in, in many ways mysterious to us what actually happened and yet, we've got more information about this kind of episode than we would have ever had in the past, because microblogs have proliferated in China, and the media access to China has, has also grown dramatically in recent years. And probably because Bo Xilai himself, as party secretary of Chongqing, had taken such a high profile and different approach to politics that he invited much more comment, much more attention. Um, Partly as a tactic, he had been uh, commerce secretary a few years ago in Beijing, and was seemingly demoted, sent to Chongqing, uh, and uh, and yet, despite the demotion, managed to turn his presence in Chongqing into a political asset. He was famously um, uh, he famously led a campaign to destroy the, the gangs. Um, he left the impression that his predecessor had cultivated a lot of gangs and he could break them up. This was on the one hand welcomed by people who'd been subjected to the gang's pressures and corruption. On the other hand, it was uh, watched with dismay by uh, people of a more liberal sentiment in China, professors, bureaucrats, and others who thought that China was moving more and more toward rule of law, but the the breaking up of the, the triad gangs in in the Chongqing area ended up using methods that were very rough and ready and not not legally um, due process driven, and that so he created ambigua- ambivalent feelings about that campaign. He also uniquely in China addressed the question of the migrant laborers who are left without a status in the urban areas where they've migrated from the rural areas to work. Uh, the so-called hukou status, which puts them into the school systems, the medical care, and other sorts of social safety nets. For those people who came from within the Chongqing area, from the countryside to the city, there was a hukou arrangement made for them. And this was seen as an experiment that was probably worth following. I think Yukon can talk about that. He's written a column on this subject. Um, Then he became also uh, well-regarded for having helped to provide a relief to people looking for housing by building uh, rapidly building a lot of housing that was government owned and made available to people who were uh, squeezed into very tough and very expensive quarters in the Chongqing area, so these three things stood stood him well, and then of course, he became really famous for the silly things the uh, singing red songs, uh, kind of summoning the era of Mao Zedong back to uh, to those people who sort of miss the equality of opportunity of that period and the stability in their personal lives that's been upset by marketization and globalization in China, among other things. Um, So here is this uh, character who is, in essence, trying to work his way into the the next Politburo Standing Committee by doing very positive things and also doing things that sort of brought a lot of suspicion his way. who would have guessed that, in the process of dismissing his police chief, who had conducted the gang uh, suppression, that he demoted him to be vice mayor of Chongqing, and then uh, uh, started apparently a uh, investigation of Wang Li Jun, the uh, gentleman who was running the police force for him, and then out of the blue on the uh, just a week before the visit to the United States by the next leader of China, Xi Jinping, uh, Mr. Wang Li Jun turns up in the U.S. consulate in Chengdu. Many reports say he was seeking uh, some kind of asylum. I'm not in a position to confirm that. The U.S. government has never addressed this in any public way. Um, if you assume that, that's a reasonable assumption, but I wouldn't say we know that. And some people want to be cautious about what we know and what we assume and what we guess. Um, Wang stayed about a day in the consulate and then while he was there, some 70 police from Cheng- Qing, Chongqing arrived in the Chengdu municipality uh, to surround the consulate. And my understanding is the consulate was already surrounded by plenty of security since the 1989 uprising when our consulate was burned. And so there's been heavy security provided there. So we had a... from various uh, accounts, conflicting police under conflicting orders all armed and surrounding the Chengdu consulate. So a lot of tension built. Of course, it got noticed. And uh, I, you know, looking back, I wonder, would Bo Si Lai have suffered the fate he did if he hadn't sent his police to uh, Chengdu and drawn all this international attention to the activity that was taking place? My guess, he probably would still be in trouble. but. Um, it was an extraordinary uh, NPC because while Wanjabao arrived to make the annual major speech, you know, it was hours long tick tock through the, the, the policies of the government and the Weibo were having the, the micro blogs were having a great time you know, focusing in on sleeping NPC delegates <laughs> and people with their jaws hanging open it was <laughs> Which is, and and, and some, some of the blogs were focused on the very well-dressed children of high f- former officials and the, the jewelry they were wearing. And it was just a very different kind of atmosphere. And in all of this, Boisilai Lai turned up at the meetings, um, acted like nothing had happened, uh, missed one day, and then still felt that he could, at that point, um, uh, talk publicly with reporters in some detail about how he'd felt ill the day before, he'd therefore missed the meeting, uh, that things were all fine in his situation. And um, it was unfolding, clearly more and more was being said in the blogs that the party was getting nervous about what Wang Li Jun may or may not have disclosed when he was removed from Chengdu, accompanied by the Vice Minister of State Security, to Beijing for interrogation. Um, Not much has been heard about that interrogation officially. Uh, but everyone was following every move of Boasi Lai at the Party Congress. And while that was happening, evidently the noose was tightening around his neck in Beijing. Uh, he, um, uh, at the, by the end of the meeting, as, as most of you who are here would already be well aware, uh, Wen Jiabao, in his final press conference, made a very carefully prepared remark about Boasi Lai, learn from this experience, and try to avoid the effects of the Cultural Revolution. I don't have the precise language in front of me, but you can find it easily. Um, and then the next day, uh, Boasi Lai was removed from office entirely. And on Friday this past week, the most extraordinary <laughs> document was circulated among party officials, especially in Chongqing, but nationwide. And so it's become available. Los Angeles Times has uh, on its website has got uh, copies of the announcement and ret- a transcription of the announcement, which lays out a very bare-bones case against Bo si Lai. Um, what it says seemed to be all very factually based. It says that someone went to an embassy for the consulate, excuse me, for the first time an official went to a consulate and embarrassed the country. And the second paragraph said he alleged that he'd been under threat of investigation in Chongqing And then it said the party should learn lessons from this, and we should draw together and keep up party spirit. And the next day, Xi Jinping gave an important speech um, on making sure party spirit is maintained and party discipline. So not a small matter. Um, These kinds of documents that were circulated on Friday are the sort of thing China does very authoritatively occasionally when they do face very important uh, transitions. They have to give something to the local officials to say to sort of tide things over. But to my mind, the amazing thing about the document is it never addresses what it was that Wang Lijun said that um, uh, Bo Si Lai had or his family had done. It it leaves the impression and many reporters have talked about it in terms of, obviously it's about corruption. But it never says it's about corruption. It never says it's about building a yacht he shouldn't have had or you know digging a mine he shouldn't have dug. It doesn't say what it was at all. Which leads me to the to the suspicion that this is far from having played out, that the um, at some point, whether it's officially revealed or it comes through the cracks of the system, we're going to find out what it was that was the particular issue between uh, Bo Si Lai, his family, and Wang Lijun. And uh, that, I think, is going to have huge repercussions uh, for China's internal leadership situation. Uh, in the immediate... Uh, aftermath of this affair. The uh, three things I would draw from this are, one, the uh, forces of the status quo um, of the the current order under Hu Jintao won a tactical victory over someone they feared uh, or were concerned about coming out of Chongqing, Bo Xilai, and and the followers he had developed around the country. Secondly, um, this is far from over the uh, consequences of this are going to play out. It's obviously a challenge to the pattern that was being developed of institutionalization of succession. Uh, Don't get me wrong, I don't think Hu Jintao or Xi Jinping or uh, Li Keqiang's status are in doubt uh, at this point. But the other positions on the Politburo Standing Committee and the knock-on positions below could be very seriously put out of out of uh, pre-arrangement, by the consequences of this event, and thirdly, there are going to be very widespread consequences in Chongqing because it was a personal network. People talk about factions and. And whether or not we have seeing factions at work in China today, I'm very much of an open mind about that. I can sometimes see a faction, and sometimes I say well, that faction doesn't work because it's this guy's got straddled loyalties or straddled functions. And uh, there may still be factional tendencies, plus tendencies that work against factions in China. There are people who follow this more systemically than I do, and perhaps we can get them around here to talk about about the existence of factions. But nonetheless, personal networks are endemic in China. And the Chongqing personnel network of Wang Yang, now the Guangzhou Party Secretary, had been dismantled when Bo Lai moved into Chongqing. It's, it's perfectly to be assumed that with the new temporary leadership appointed to Chongqing, there are going to be many more changes in personnel. So I think this is a story that's just going to keep on playing out and adding uncertainties as we watch China go through this important year of political transition. Now I'd like to turn the floor over to uh, Yukon Huang to make some initial remarks about the uh, economic side of the NPC, which is what got all the big headlines the first part of the week uh, of, the, of the meeting. And then we'll go to Michael Swain to, to wrap up with the military side, then happily open it to questions afterwards. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Doug. The the topics I'm going to talk about are decidedly less interesting than what Doug has just gone over. <laughs> this is the uh, Premier one's uh, report on the work of the government. It's 29 pages. You'd be hard pressed, if you read it, to find anything which has been left out. Every single problem, challenge that China faces is mentioned in here, including issues which only came up in the last couple of months. And they range from big issues like the growth rate of the economy to issues like school bus safety, which is getting a lot of coverage in China. So what is, how is one to make sense of this document in terms of its comparison with the past? And then external observers note, of course, that many of the same issues, they show up in previous year statements, many of the same challenges are challenges that China's been facing for many decades. So what I'd like to do is give you a little bit of a context in terms of judging what is China talking about and what should we look for? And let me use three criteria in judging uh, Premier Wen's statement. And let me use his own criteria. He says that China's growth is unbalanced, unsustainable, uncoordinated. So this is what he says is the problem in China in terms of policies. And let's go back and revisit what has been said in light of these three criteria. And to simplify 29 pages, let me just focus on three themes. Because I realize that most people cannot... Remember, more than three themes. <laughs> and the first thing I would like to focus on is what I would call the headline indicators. Growth, trade, exchange rate. These are the macro aggregates that the press and the public are looking for. And here I would say three points have come out over the last couple of weeks, which basically the markets have interpreted it negatively. And what I want to say to you today is they should have actually interpreted them positively. So there's something wrong in people's perceptions. The first thing that came out is Premier One said the growth rate of the economy over the the coming years will be 7.5 percent. This should not have been a surprise. It's consistent with the 12 5 year plan. It's something that's been in the press for months, yet when it came out, markets went down. And why did they go down? Because people thought this was a sign of a weakness in the economy. And what I'd like to say is actually not. It's a sign of recognition of reality that for a more sustained and higher quality growth rate, China's growth needs to come down, but it needs to come down in a managed way. The second point that's come out in the last couple of weeks is that uh, a month or so ago, China's trade balance was a deficit of $51 billion. And of course, it was distorted by the Chinese New Year period. But nevertheless, if you take the first couple of months as a whole, China ran a deficit. Now, I don't think China's going to run a deficit for the year as a whole. I'm sure it will still be a positive. But China's trade surplus has come down from 9% in 2008 to less than 2% for last year, and likely it'll come down to about 1% for this year. Now, is this bad or good? And many people interpret it as bad, but obviously it's actually quite good. Everyone's been talking about the fact that China's growth process should be more balanced. The global macro imbalances would be helped by the fact that China's trade surplus came down. China does not need any more foreign exchange. It has $3.1 trillion, but people think it's a problem because it came down from three point two. But the real issue is that with trade balances declining – with the foreign reserves stabilizing, China has the opportunity to do something which it's been looking for for years, which is to make the exchange rate flexible up and down rather than be tied to the need to continue to appreciate, because every time it appreciates, it draws in more money. So what you're going to see is now they have the chance, the exchange rate will probably fluctuate wider, but it'll go both up or down, but doesn't necessarily have to go up by or appreciated by significant margins. And this is actually good for China, good for the world. So on these headline indicators, growth rate, trade balances, exchange rate, markets have sort of like become concerned, but I would say they shouldn't have been. This is actually a very good thing for China. The second thing I'd like to focus on, and it comes through Premier's statement, continuously in many different ways. What's the big problem facing China? The big problem is rising inequality Social unrest is increasing. There's less stress on society. And why is this happening? Here's a country growing at double digits for several decades. Incomes are increasing by 8 or 9 percent a year, both in urban and rural areas, the highest growth rate in the world. So why is it that the society is under so much stress? What well, disparities really matter. And disparities are rather unique in China. It's not that the Gini coefficient is unusual, which is a measure of overall inequality, it's 0.47. It's the same Gini coefficient as in China, as in the United States. It's the same coefficient as in Malaysia. It's the same coefficient as in Singapore. It's actually lower than Latin America and much lower than Thailand. So by that measurement, inequality is not an issue in China. But inequality in a spatial way in China is really unique. The difference between urban and rural incomes is three and a half, the highest in the world. The difference between coastal incomes and interior prov- provincial income is two and a half, again by a regional basis, the highest in the world. So China has a spatial inequality which is distinct, unusual, and it's been increasing, not decreasing, and this is causing stress. Now what i like to focus on is what I would call the economic aspects, Why is inequality rising in China despite what I would call very strong economic performance? And the point I'd like to make is it's actually a consequence of what I would call incomplete reforms. And incomplete reforms essentially means that the fiscal and financial systems, which have been really efficient in stimulating growth, have been terrible in moderating disparities. And and, and two reasons, a very simple two reasons. The budget is too small its allocation for social expenditures is only about 50 to 60% in terms of the share of GDP of other middle-income developing countries. So China actually spends too little on this. China relies a lot on the banks, and you read about that in the newspapers everywhere. But if you rely on the banks to fund what I would call public expenditures, it inevitably means that more lending goes to the richer provinces, richer areas, because banks lend to more credit-worthy borrowers. So both the fiscal system and the financial system have not been helping disparities. Now let's look at social unrest. It's been increasing exponentially. Two-thirds, three-quarters of these protests, small and big, are due to two factors. It's the battle over land and the protest of migrant workers. And essentially what it shows is that the two key resources of production, land and labor in China, The control, the legal definition, their rights, is creating a great deal of social unrest, And you're very familiar with the land issue. All land is owned by the state, but the use of the land, whether it's in rural areas and urban areas, is governed by local authorities. And since this is still ambiguous, and since people are using land to generate revenues for local governments and cities, this creating tremendous tensions and injustices are being perceived. And the other issue is migrant workers. Migrant workers are estimated to be anywhere between 180, to 250 million people. They're concentrated in the major cities. They are the majority of the labor force in many megacities, the majority, yet they lack certain rights. As Doug commented on, tsung Chi was trying to experiment with giving them more rights by giving them formal hukou. But it was a lot easier for Bo Lai because he was dealing with one province. People in the suburbs of Chongqing could move to the city. But if people from Henan or Hunan want to move, to move to Shanghai or Beijing or Guangdong, that's a completely different matter. And this is a big issue. So when you read about the labor protests in terms of apples factories in Guangdong province at the Foxconn huge assembly plants, you're reading about the work status of migrant workers and although their incomes have increased enormously, in a new modernizing China, this is not enough to meet their aspirations. And this is a major issue. Now, how is this showing up in terms of what I talk about the politics? It's creating a lot of tensions at the local levels. And there are a lot of people commenting on the fact that this social stress is it or will or can it be a form of or source of political instability in the future, like what is happening in the Middle East? And the point I'd like to make here in our article I wrote for Foreign Affairs. There is a quite a distinct difference between the nature of political instability and social unrest in China and what you see in the Middle East. And the big difference is that the protests at the local levels, and very much illustrated by this fishing village in Guangdong, Wuhan, which had free elections after land transfers were being protested, the protests are more or less designed or targeted toward local authorities, and the people of China still think of Beijing as their saviour. So in some sense, you have a very funny situation. The more instability there is, the more people think they can be saved by the senior leaders in Beijing, whereas the protests in the Middle East, when they protest, they're trying to target the people at the top. And this is a very distinct difference. But what it means is that the relationship between the local authorities and Beijing is a very important relationship that is under stress. And that Premier Wen's paper, talks a lot about the issue of center-local relationships financial, fiscal, and even in political reform, because he talks about the fact that village-based elections in local areas is the place to begin in the future, and he endorses it in his concluding statement. Last, let me talk about what I think is a very difficult issue for the government to deal with, and does not come out very clearly in this report to the government. It's basically the role of the state, the role of the private sector. For three decades now, China has been operating on the premise that socialism with Chinese characteristics, quote, century capitalism, was fine, and this would work. That worked, I would say, pretty well for several decades, but it's no longer working. So people are really debating the issue of what is the role of the private sector, is the government or the state sector getting too large. Now, the point I'd like to make is the following Why is the issue so contentious now? It's always been contentious. But more contentious today than it was a decade ago. And the answer is a fairly ironic thing. It didn't actually matter a decade ago. A decade ago, these state enterprises were unprofitable. No one cared too much. The big issue was how do you get them to operate and to start generating surpluses? And meanwhile, you encouraged and allowed the private sector to flourish, and it did. It became much larger share of production, it employs most of the labor force, it's a very dynamic element in society. But today, the state enterprises are making a bundle. They have control over resources. They have monopoly positions. The economy is going very, very fast. They're extraordinarily profitable. They keep all this money. And it's being seen now by the private sector as a barrier to entry and competition. Now, people talk about competition in China. In the past, they used to talk about competing with foreign producers, the trade regime being competitive globally. The big issue in competition in China today is actually internal competition between the state enterprises and the private enterprises. And this is an issue that needs to be dealt with. Finally, let me go back to my three themes. Unbalanced, unsustainable, and uncoordinated. How do you deal with the unbalances? And it also comes through in this document. The unbalances are really the difference between very low consumption rates and very high investment rates. And the point I'd like to make out, and it also comes through in the document, the key to a balanced or more balanced growth strategy in China is actually more rapid urbanization. What is really different about China compared to other countries at its per capita income level? Now, when you go to China, you actually think the cities are really crowded and very big. The great irony is that China is, in fact, not urbanized enough. And only this year became 50-50 urban rural. But China, if you didn't control the process, it would be 67% urban instead of 50-50. And if it was, consumption would be much larger to share of GDP. So issues like migration, as Doug mentioned, hukou, giving people security, is the key to generating more balanced growth. And it is mentioned in Premier's documents. They want to make progress on this, but this is still politically contentious. So that's the unbalanced question. Unsustainable. You must have a a moderate, a slower slower growth rate. You have to be more environmentally conscious. You have to promote green technology. And for it to be sustainable, you actually have to have a more dynamic role for the private sector because its claim for resources, its labor generating uh, implications of a more dynamic private sector, is directly the primary force for driving what I call a more sustainable economy in China uncoordinated. What is meant by uncoordinated? Now, before you would do the following, I would reform the budget, I would reform the banking sector, I would reform the foreign exchange regime, and I would do each of these three big areas different time periods. It was a very good way of doing it, actually, because senior policymakers cannot deal with everything at the same time. It's just too difficult. But you now have an economy which is much more sophisticated, and the problem now is that they're in a gridlock. You cannot, in fact, reform the exchange rate without reforming the banks, without reforming the budget. And this particular issue, I think, is, in fact, not fully recognized or addressed in the documents. Each of the three silos is a problem is addressed. But the fact that you cannot move forward in any one area without doing something in the other, I think, is the biggest challenge. And many people have commented on the fact that reforms in China have slowed in the last four to five years. And the reason it's actually slowed is that the problem of coordination, which was not a big issue 10 years ago, is now the biggest issue they face. Let me
0: stop here. Actually, I found that very interesting, Yukon. I'm going to address uh, two issues that are security-related that came up at the uh, NPC. One of them, Doug mentioned, which is defense spending – and the other one, <coughs> pardon me, has to do with uh, maritime issues. Uh, on the defense spending side, the, the Chinese uh, announced at the NPC that the defense budget would increase by 11.2 uh, percent to about six to 670 billion RMB, or a little over 100 billion U.S. dollars um, yeah, this year. For some people, this was a surprising decision because um, they expected it to be higher. And they expected it to be higher because of what was going on in US policy uh, with the so-called pivot to Asia, with the announcement of what's called the joint operational access concept. and the notion of what's called air-sea battle, which is designed to deal with the kinds of capabilities that China, among others, is developing. There was the inclination to think that, well, China is going to respond to that by upping its defense spending. And it certainly increased defense spending, but it didn't increase it at anything like uh, abnormal or unusual levels. Uh, Chinese defense spending has been within the same ballpark of this amount for this year for a long time. Um, it's, and now, of course, I'll get to the question of what is actual versus what is official defense spending because there is a a disparity there. But I'm speaking right now about what the Chinese have announced officially in their, in their defense spending. And it's, it's been the case that, um, defense spending in China has generally been pegged to increases or to percentages of GDP. And in China, defense spending now for two decades or more has been roughly between one and one and a half percent of estimated GDP. Uh, And as GDP goes up, the amount of defense spending goes up. Uh, And so there's been a general sense that it needs to be related to economic growth and economic development, that there's a perception clearly that defense needs to be attended to and and focused on and you have to have increases in defense spending to deal with all kinds of deficiencies and new new needs that uh, the Chinese government faces on the security side. So, in general, it's, it's not, it wasn't a surprising increase in terms of historical developments. It's very much in line with what we have seen historically. So, it suggests there that there, that there isn't a lot of hyperventilation, at least for now, within China about U.S. policies' impact on security issues, that there's a sense that uh, the proportionality of defense spending should remain the same. Uh, And you didn't see much indication, at least I didn't, of discussions at the NPC about the defense budget being inadequate or needed to be increased more. Or uh, It just wasn't very much of an issue, it seemed. So that's one point that uh, is, is interesting. Now, the actual spending level, of course, is highly debated among outside analysts as to how much China really spends on its defense. Estimates uh, in the past, including DOD estimates, ran as high as four times the official budget. Um, That was years ago. More recently, DOD has brought that down to about 1.5 times the official budget. And some people have concluded from that that uh, either, well, one of two things has led to that change. Uh, One, that uh, DOD's ability to estimate the defense budget has actually um, increased that they actually have a better understanding now than they did before uh, as to how much China spends on its defense, um, and and the other one is that it's just um, gone up, um, and uh, but I think the former one is is probably the more more likely explanation for it. Um, the actual spending, then, doesn't include, though, a range of different factors that uh, still need to be accounted for. So it's it's very likely that the official figure certainly is inadequate and that China is spending more than $100 billion equivalent on its defense every year. Now, what about the future? Well, there this is also debated as to how much China is actually going to be spending on defense in the future. There are some who estimate that, in fact, uh, it will have to spend a lot more than it's been spending. That is to say, increases the, uh, the annual increases will actually go up from what we've seen historically. And, there, and the arguments for this are a combination of things, including increasing personnel costs. The Chinese defense spending budget has, incre- has increased at certain intervals in correlation To increases in personnel costs as well, to try and make uh, salaries within the military more competitive to civilian salaries within China. Um, It's also because people argue China is going to become a more technology intensive, going to have a more technology intensive um, military structure. Uh, And technology, higher technology, costs money. And the development and acquisition of more high tech. Capabilities are going to really inevitably uh, drive costs up in defense spending. And the third reason is because China's defense needs, as I said earlier, have grown, and that China, in fact, um, has new interests um, in the security area, uh, both domestically and beyond its borders, that will require more capability Uh, in terms of logistics, in terms of actual platforms out there, Et cetera, That will uh, increase defense spending, and so some people even believe that that given China's domestic problems that Yukon has been alluding to, that China may come into a, a pressure about uh, a sort of a guns versus butter pressure over time in in trying to allocate how much defense spending it actually can make to cover these kinds of increasing costs, but. This, at this point, is, is somewhat, others, other people say the Chinese GDP is easily capable of absorbing much higher levels of defense spending. Um, 1.2, under 1.2% of GDP in defense spending is not high. Uh, the average for the United States is a little under 5% in recent years. Many other countries, large countries with significant militaries have over 1.5% GDP that they spend on defense. Um, so it's 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 an amount that they can probably afford to increase uh, to some degree in coming years now let me turn to the uh the uh, maritime area here i guess the only really notable uh development were well actually two one was kind of uh more within the bounds of what you would might maybe consider um cons- uh, Uh, not authoritative, but legitimate discussion within the NPC, and that is the issue of the uh, development of a um, more comprehensive maritime development strategy and a basic maritime law uh, that would be included, presumably, or the implication is that would be included in China's corpus of laws and possibly in the Chinese constitution uh, that defines more clearly uh, what China's uh, perspective is on the issue of maritime rights. And as as some uh, delegates to the NBC said, to fill in the gaps or the blanks um, in uh, the PRC legal system on this issue and to address issues that, pardon me, are not being addressed in international law. Uh, and there, um, specifically, the issues that have been raised have been Questions of the UN Commission on the Law of the Seas definition of the basis for, uh, sovereignty and, um, and the lack of definition of the, um, the rights of foreign militaries operating in exclusive economic zones, which is a big issue of contention between the U.S. and China. Uh, and the people who've been proposing these, uh, this law have been uh, at least in the press have been the PLA delegates, and one PLA delegate in in particular who used to be commander of the Nanjing military region, and it's it's been so they've been uh, it's it's given the impression I think in some quarters that the military here is really trying to push forward this notion of more clearly defining what China's position is in the maritime area, so as to defend its claims uh, in the South China Sea and in other places, uh, to provide them with a stronger basis in law, which makes it more difficult, presumably, to uh, bring up counter positions both within China and internationally. Uh, And all the, the response to this has simply been that the NPC standing committee, this same thing, by the way, the maritime laws was raised in past years, and it was raised last year at the NPC as well. And the NPC Standing Committee apparently has examined it. And there's been no uh, real decision to move forward on this, and we can discuss possible reasons why that is. I mean, I have my own ideas about this, and I think it probably relates to a combination of both foreign policy issues and domestic issues as well and differences. Another issue that was raised by people um, in the NPC Delegates at the NPC and military delegates and and was sort of less central or less less visible but but very significant was the call for greater central control and coordination over uh, maritime activities Chinese maritime activities there was criticism, very open criticism of the lack of coordination and lack of central control over the activities of local actors in maritime areas like the South China Sea. I mean, a clear acknowledgement by the Chinese of what many outside observers know very well, which is that the Chinese system does not currently have a unified central control over a lot of these actors, which are called in Chinese the nine dragons. Nine different administrative entities actually have control over different aspects of maritime claims along China's maritime periphery. And it's created a somewhat chaotic situation that in some cases has led to incidents in others. And there's a big discussion among outside observers as to how much of the assertiveness that China has shown in the maritime area over the last couple of years has been due to a deliberate central policy, and how much of it has actually been due to local actors who have sort of you know, gotten frisky gone beyond uh, out of the reservation to some degree, and had to be pulled back by Beijing over time. And uh, that's still an ongoing debate. So in any event, it was interesting that at the NPC, there have been calls for um, greater coordination and central control. And a long <clears throat> one person who has been involved in that uh, has been the uh, well-known uh, PLA uh, commentator Loyan who is also a member of the NPC. Uh, And he stated the need to have this greater level of central control. He also said that the units operating in maritime areas should be combined, by and large, into a national Coast Guard. Uh, That indeed, in this area, there are different, again, administrations that run their own ships and that have their own control over assets in these maritime areas, and this should be unified into a single Coast Guard as part of this central coordination and government decision-making system. He also said that this is, of course, would be a much more controversial thing. He he said that the South China Sea should be made into a special administrative zone, uh, similar to other special administrative zones, <laughs> such, such as Tibet and <laughs> Xinjiang. Um, and, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of seconding of that that went on at the NPC, uh, and no ref- reference to the NPC Standing Committee taking this up. Um, so it's, anyway, it was a very interesting, uh, uh, proposal. Um, right now, the, the South China Sea is supposedly under, uh, what's, what's defined as a county level administrative unit which I, I guess is, is connected to Hainan. I'm not sure. Connected to Hainan. Um, so this would be a, a huge change to make this into, into something that's um, like a, a special economic administrative zone. Pardon me. So anyway, those to me are the uh, two most interesting elements of what has come out of the NPC regarding uh, defense or security related issues. So I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you. Would you like to make
1: comments before we go?
0: Well, thank you both. I think
1: those are um, pretty good efforts at trying to extract the little nuggets from the NPC that if you try to make your way through all the propaganda and the statements and the the blogs could take you a lot of time. So I hope you find it convenient and interesting this morning. And now um, I think we've really, as I say nuggets, we really have not touched on a lot of material. That may be on your minds, and certainly are on the minds of a lot of Chinese. And so we're prepared now to open the floor to your questions. We ask that you, when you um, get identified, you for a question, please identify yourself and your affiliation, and then make a simple, clear, and short question of it. David, here in the yellow coat. Oh, his microphone's coming. Dave Cornbluth from
0: the Foreign Service Institute. A question for Mr. Huang. The World Bank's report, China 2030, drew a uh, fairly well-publicized response from the State Asset Control Administration. Would you
1: care to comment on (coughs) why that criticism came as it did and what it might signify about the leadership's response to to the suggestions of the
2: World Bank report?
1: No, you go ahead with
2: that one. As I said, I think it was my third point that the issue in terms of the role of the state, particularly state enterprises, and the private sector will be one of the more contentious issues that will probably need to be dealt with by the incoming leadership. That report, the World Bank's report, essentially says that formal privatization or moving in that direction is not realistic. So a transitional form of management, creation of asset management companies, separating the ownership functions from the operating and management functions, which is a transitional way of moving forward. And that the profits, the profits of these state enterprises, which currently are either essentially largely retained by the enterprises, and a small amount, a very small amount, paid out as dividends to the uh, entity which manages them. which does not go to the budget, stays with the entity, and essentially uses subsidized loss making enterprises. This needs to be changed. So it basically recommends that these profits should, in fact, be transferred to the budget, to the Ministry of Finance, to be used for general purposes. Now, you can see why this is causing uh, a lot of concern. Uh, it, It talks about shifting the resources which are being generated in the state sector into the budget and taking away from the state enterprises themselves, it's talking about a different form of managing and operating owner, owner uh, ownership transformation of them in a way that uh, will change the current power structure. And this is very sensitive, of course, because it hits at the very strong vested interest in the system. David, I, I would just add a, a
1: brief comment. I, I'm not as all at all as close to that report as UConn or others from Carnegie are, but from my more sort of 5,000-foot observation level. Uh, my impression is that um, the report got a lot of support. It was NDRC was a big part of its uh, backing uh, from the people who were trying to promote reform in China. But as we've seen in the last, since really 2005 in my estimation, uh, we've seen a very strong counter-reform efforts, especially circulating from the finance ministry and some of these state-owned enterprises. And I think they struck back uh, in the aftermath of the publication of the report. Tom, second row here, thanks. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Doug, identify yourself, please. Yeah,
3: I'm Tom <laughs> Reckford uh, with the World Affairs Council and the Malaysia America Society. Um, Doug, at, at, at the end of your remarks, you teased us by uh, talking about the existence of factions but uh, saying it was kind of hard to tell what they are. Uh, could you try uh, is there, for example, a a, a significant Shanghai faction? Uh, is there a Beijing faction? Uh, what are we talking about?
1: Well, I'm I, I'm I'm going to be a little unfair and put words in his mouth. but Our next-door neighbor Li Cheng, uh, Chung Li, is the leading expert on this subject. He's just written a new a, a new book uh, on the on the path to Zhongnanhai. Uh, that's just published on. He talks about the factions surrounding the uh, Communist Youth League and the leader of that faction in his account would be and many other people's accounts would be Hu Jintao and uh, Li Keqiang the premier candidate for next year seems to be part of that group as well and, and you find people all over the country who are identified as in that way <clears throat> Then there are people identified as being affiliated with princelings and this is where I could confused because you'll find people who are the children of revolutionary cadre who've got privileged positions for their families and in their positions in government or party Uh, and they say there's a princeling faction and they're fighting for their interests and that may well be true on some interests but we also see cross-cutting indicators Uh, you'll find Wang Shishan who's a who's the son of a revolutionary figure, who seems from our experience to be quite reformist in direction. Uh, And there are other people who are embedded in the finance ministry. There's a a wonderful book called Red Capitalism by um, uh, Howie and uh, um, Walter published a year a year and a half ago which describes roughly 25 families that have sort of seized the state assets they're not in their pocket but they've got complete control over them and so it's very and and they would be a very different group of princelings from the wang chi so i have a difficulty saying there's a princeling faction i i might accept that there's a a a, um, youth league faction and then people talk about Jiang Zemin having his his associations, he had, his power lingered past 2002 when he formally stepped down from the government and party, but he hadn't left the military. He appointed a lot of generals at the time. And there were a lot of people in various provinces and in the central government who owe their positions to Jiang Zemin. Um, in the last go-round, we had something very similar to what happened to Boisilai, Lai, although um, it seemed to be something that was more proactive at the time. Um, we had, just before the Party Congress, uh, the mayor of Shanghai was arrested and uh, for corruption. And that seemed to be a hardball up close to the chin of Jiang Zemin uh, to keep him from pushing his agenda on the personnel choices. And similarly, the head of China Television was fired, which seemed to be a hardball close to the head of Li Peng, a former premier. And we had a a gentleman in Tianjin jump from a building and commit suicide. Uh, And that seemed to have been caused by a corruption investigation that had been initiated to send a message to um, yet another high-level official in the People's Republic. And so some people think that this Bosilai affair is another one of these things where the center uses selectively information about corruption to keep these faction groups in, in check, these smaller factions in check. Um that may be true in the Boise Lai case i don't i can't find the the, the 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 link back to Beijing that says somebody in Beijing made this happen. somebody talked Wang Lijun and going to the american consulate <laughs> this This seems to have just been good fortune for the status quo uh in the way this unfolded and good fortune for those who feared that Boisilai's politics might uh rattle the foundations of the party's uh, control
0: just I mean I think it's it's a very interesting question what the relationship is between personal relationships and institutional structures in China in le- in the leadership area. Today the Chinese leadership today is very different from what it was some decades ago, right? In terms of both its background, its it's it's its level of individual authority uh, and influence, it's it's much more structured in terms of different types of functional responsibilities. Members of the standing committee um, are not, by and large, most analysts think are not a reflection of impersonal factions that have then been validated through membership in the standing committee. Um, That said, we still really don't know, obviously, how individual members of the standing committee are selected. But it seems that there is a very strong correlation with um, their backgrounds in terms of their functional responsibilities and expertise in, in a variety of areas, uh, and their proven track record as party members, as government officials, and their ultimate selection into the Standing Committee. And then you see a very functionally defined um, definition of individual positions. Uh, each member of the Standing Committee, in general, leads a whole functional policy area of responsibility Uh, And it's those kinds of distinctions and their relationship to lower-level bureaucratic organizational interests that are probably more important in terms of decision-making as you move along in China than the sort of informal, personalized factions of the sort of the Maoist and and Dung period. At least that's my take on it. What
1: Michael's describing is that institutionalization that they've been striving for for the last two decades to get past the the great leader and the limitations of having a great leader. Uh, And and I think it's also what they felt was being threatened by Bois Lai's playing outside the rules. Third, fourth row.
2: Um. Thank you, uh, Jim from the Straits Times of Singapore. Um. Two quick questions for Doug. Um. What's your sense as to what really is at the heart of the whole Poh Lai saga? You know, is this just you know the good old corruption, political ambition issue, or is there more? I think recently, FT had a story that sort of links the whole saga to the whole Tianan uh, the Tiananmen issue. Um. Seems to be a, a big leap. I was just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Um, and is there going to be any impact on U.S.-China relations, the way this issue has been playing out, given all the speculation about what Wang Lijin might have or might not have said to the Americans? Thanks.
1: Okay, thanks, Jim. The, um, on, the on the first question, um, uh, we don't know um, the fact that, China, I mean, if it were petty corruption, I think we would know now. Um, part of this, I think, is a process issue. Just watching last week, where... Something was afoot, and yet Boisilai was out in public and nothing was done. And then within 72 hours, the trap door just opened under him and he was gone. Um, I think facts, you know, this this leads to speculation where I lean towards a a theory until proven otherwise that the facts were unfolding and the leadership was only coming to be aware of them and being, I suspect, were shocked by them as the week went on. Another explanation is that Bo Xilai si had his supporters in the Politburo Standing Committee, and while the facts were on the table from the day that Wang Lijun got back to Beijing, people were arguing over whether this was bad enough to cause a change in personnel. Uh, was it was it um, a threat to a factional structure? There are these discussions out on the on the internet among academics and journalists about whether or not there was a factional resistance to taking action against Bo Xilai. Si I just think it's premature to say what that is. Um, On the question of U.S.-China relations, I I want to express real admiration for those people in the U.S. government who who are, because of their need to know, know what Wang Lijun said, have kept themselves uh, shut up on it. (laughs) This 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 is something that's Chinese. And if the story comes out from the U.S. that, well, here's what he really did, he stole a black truffle at a restaurant, you know. um, then I think we would we would become the target of all the opprobrium and we'd be ground up in the in the internal frictions uh, in China. And so I think it's entirely appropriate that the U.S. stand away from this. And symbolically, the fact that Wang Lijun made his exit to Beijing from the consulate a week or so before Xi Jinping stepped down in the U.S. And Xi Jinping had what, by all measure, is a rather successful visit to the U.S., shows that you know, adult supervision was at work, and stability, in the relationship was maintained, despite what could have been, you know, anything from a small boulder to a huge problem, if it had been exposed. Uh, and again, we don't know you, know, you and I, we don't know what it is, and we'll have to see. But it, it doesn't look like it's a small thing, and so this is best handled in China by Chinese for Chinese purposes. Any other? First row. Hi, my name is Matthew Robertson. I write for the Epic Times. Um, this is to Yukon. I'm just kind of curious about interest rates. Um, the,
2: it's a negative real interest rate for people saving, so that leads to investment in housing and blah, blah, blah. So um, could you talk about, I mean, this has been like a, a pet issue for Wenjieba for
1: a long time. So I'm curious about um, any chances of interest rate liberalisation.
2: Um, what would that lead to? How would that? Change the saving um, and consumption situation, and um, and is there um, vast overinvestment in real estate, in your opinion? The uh, interest rate liberalisation, i.e., should be higher, has been around for many years now, uh, and certainly the authorities are concerned about the fact that with inflation, which reached as high as 6% uh, almost a year ago. Uh, and passbook savings rates is only 3%. It's, it's negative in real terms. But I, I, but I think they will also look at it from a slightly different angle. If you look at the whole world, you'll find that half the countries in the world have negative real interest rates, including the United States. The one-year passbook savings rate in China is 3%. The one-year CD rate, if you put your money in the savings bank here, is about a half a percent. Inflation here is close to three, and China is over four. So, in fact, the U.S. has a higher negative real interest rate problem than the United States. Than China. Than China, than China. Than China excuse me. The real issue in China, actually, is not the negative interest rate, which discourages people from savings, The real issue is that the money is captured in China because you don't have so few outlets and there's capital controls. So in the United States, if people feel that the banks aren't being fair, whatever, they can do what they want. They move it here, they invest there, can do all sorts of things. But in China, you're restricted. You can't move your money very easily and there aren't many investment alternatives. But the one which has been very attractive in the last several years is real estate. So your second point was, what's the problem in real estate? And the answer is, with negative real interest rates and limited alternatives for investment, then you speculate in real estate and you have a bubble. And that is, a, that is why the interest rate is an issue. But it's not so much the negative real interest rate that's the issue. The real issue is you have very limited room to move your money around. Now, that is changing. And a very important policy message that PBOC put out a while back, it basically said, can we liberalize the movement of money so that people can move it out easier? first and then liberalize it a different way by allowing people to move money into China easier, both ways. And if we did that, we'd also have to make sure the interest rates are more flexible because we're starting to let capital become more flexible. So this is where I talk about the issue of coordination. You cannot just change the interest rate without worrying about capital movements. You cannot worry about capital movements without worrying about your quality of your financial institutions. And lastly, you can't do any of this until you've gotten your exchange rate a little bit more flexible because it's affected by these interest rates. So what is seemingly a very trivial issue, like make the interest rate higher, is in fact not trivial at all. It's very, very complicated by a number of policies, which have to be done almost simultaneously. So this is why I think China is a bit of a gridlock. These issues are not solely the purview of one agency or another agency. It really requires a much higher consensus. JOHN
3: John Zan with CTI TV of Taiwan. Doug, a uh, question for you and one for Michael. The question for Doug, it's interesting that you say you admire the people who keep their mouths shut about what, re- what really happened in the U.S. consulate uh, when uh, Mr. Wang Lijun was there for about 24 hours. Does that mean that we will never know uh, the real facts? We will never know what uh, really happened? You don't want to know? And, and, and also, uh, House, uh, Inter- uh, House uh, Foreign Affairs Committee is launching an investigation into this because people uh, wanted to know whether or not Wang Lijun was deliberately turned away uh, so as not to disrupt the uh, Xi Jinping visit. What do you think? Um, have you heard anything at all off the record, um, background, whatever? Uh, <laughs> the, que- the question, the, the question it's for Michael. Uh, Michael, you were you were you know while discussing the uh, uh, the increase in the Chinese military spending, you were saying that eleven point two percent increase does not look like uh, the Chinese reaction to the uh, much publicized U.S. pivot uh, to Asia. Why, why, uh, why do we see this uh, lag of reaction on the part of China? Uh, Was it because the uh, they don't they don't think much of the U.S. movement, or uh, the um, uh, they thought that uh, they had everything under control with the kind of money they have in their pocket now? Thank you.
1: What was the second half of your first question to me?
3: Will we ever know the facts? Uh, you know what happened uh, at the uh, consulate during the uh, 24 hours when Mr. Wang was there.
1: Oh, it was about the hearing. The hearing. Uh, sorry. The um, I, I, as I tried to say in my opening remarks, the um, uh, Chinese have been very uh, careful to describe accurately, as far as I can tell, the circumstances surrounding the ultimate problem. But did not address the ultimate problem. Will we find out? I think this—it it has to come out. It just can't be buried. But I, I you know, I, even though I've been told the inside story and I have it in great detail, I've been told I'll be shot if I tell you. So, <laughs> <laughs> obviously, we don't, we don't, we don't know. Um, and it's, but I think as the point I tried to make is this: it really is important for the Chinese to deal with this problem and not drag. Uh, all the things that come up with all the baggage that America brings in Chinese internal debate over politics and foreign policy unnecessarily into this issue. This is going to be a difficult year to transit without major problems. Uh, We've got off to a better start than we could have expected. The election in Taiwan uh, produced a calm outcome. Uh, The visit of Xi Jinping produced a successful uh, introductory relationship between the leaders. Uh, and But getting through our election, the the upcoming elections all around the world, even France coming up, uh, have, they have knock-on effects on all of our behaviors. And so I think we want to try to keep calm. On the question of whether Wong uh, was sent out of the embassy, I again, I don't have an internal briefing. But I do know, as someone who has served in the government for quite a few years, that our standard uh, policy is uh, Looking back at Cardinal Menzenti, who came to our embassy in 1956, and I think died in the early 1990s still in the embassy. Or, or, it must have been the 1980s because the situation had changed. Um, the the, um, the, the consular, principal consular officers are discouraged from accepting walk-ins. They encourage them to go and find some way out of the country or to deal with the authorities, but they can't put themselves in having small a position of having small missions uh, harboring people with uh, hostile atmospheres around them. Uh, this is a very rare occasion. And so I don't think it had anything to do with Xi Jinping's visit that this was taken, it was standard operating procedure followed in a standard way. To turn people away? To turn the kind of, it, it, on the presumption that this was a defection. But we, we don't even know that. We know he went there and talked.
3: So, Doug, I just want to make sure
1: that I understand you. It would be uh, standard uh, procedure to pull uh, the smaller, smaller. And and, and embas and embassies away. This is you. You buy a lot of problems when you take someone in who's on the run. Uh, that you know, and it can be for their domestic laws that are perfectly legitimate, or it could be for things that we would consider human rights violations. But in either case the relationship between the united states and the and the host country will become significantly compromised and therefore the standard advice to chiefs of mission is to try to find a way that gets the person a solution that is not resident in the diplomatic compound Michael.
0: why the chinese haven't reacted uh, more vigorously to the the pivot um I think there's a, a variety of reasons here that explain that why the Chinese are are the Chinese government seems to be pretty cautious in responding. Um, I think one of them is that there is a real sense within Beijing that the last couple of years have not been good for their foreign policy, and they have, in some ways, um, I mean, the standard word is overplayed uh, their 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 hand. They have. Uh, acted in ways that have increased fears and concerns in the region. And so I think on that score, there's a desire not to sort of further that um, concern by confronting the US over this issue in any sort of really public way, Uh, even though I think there are certainly concerns within the Chinese uh, government and certainly within the military that this pivot strategy is directed primarily at China, even though the U.S. government <coughs> says it is not, uh, and that it's part of this proto-containment effort by the United States towards China in Asia. Um, so I think, that's, I think that's one reason. Um, a second reason is I think there's kind of a wait-and-see uh, attitude to some extent among some Chinese that are looking at the U.S. policy and saying, is this really sustainable? Can the US, in fact, uh, make this kind of shift to Asia and put the resources and attention behind it that it would require, particularly given what's going on in the Middle East? I mean, just because the Iraq and Afghanistan involvement is winding down doesn't mean that the Middle East has dropped off the radar screen far from it. And so there is a concern there. Uh, Not a concern, but a, a sort of expectation here that we don't quite know what this means yet. And then thirdly, I would say that, that the response is, and there, I mean, there is a response to some degree, and that is to focus on other countries in Asia, uh, to not sort of directly focus on the US as much as to increase interactions with ASEAN and, and other countries in the region to try to address um, their interests with China and strengthen China's relationship with these countries so that the US if it does actually turn this into something that's directed at China more specifically, won't have the kind of uh, running room or ability to really follow through on it from a political point of view with with other countries in the region. Anybody else want
1: to? Judd Heriot, documentary filmmaker. I'd like to direct a question at uh, Michael Swain. Has there been any, have there been any recent conversations within the military? and the political leadership, on force projection, like developing the naval assets to protect their lines of communication to the Middle East, this kind of thing, outside of their regional interests?
0: Well, this is a, a big and kind of complicated question, and there's under a lot of scrutiny and debate in various quarters. I think that it's fair to say that there is a certain amount of, uh, I don't know if I call it debate, but there are different perspectives in China about how far China should develop its military and to what ends, uh, both within Asia and beyond Asia. Um, there is clearly a recognition within China that the Chinese military needs to acquire greater capabilities to operate offshore um and those don't necessarily all re- reflect a desire to project power uh in a combat sense expeditionary power uh to other places there's also a strong desire to try and develop greater capacity to carry out what's called military operations other than war uh which is humanitarian relief you know the anti-piracy efforts in the Gulf of Aden those sorts of things the chinese i think clearly recognize that if china wants to be a a major player uh both regionally and beyond that it needs to have a, a greater capacity to deal with this And it's so also neo uh to 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 you know the, the problem they faced in libya and getting chinese citizens i mean chinese are involved now all over the world and they in in some areas that are quite unstable and so being able to Chinese citizens out, that's also a function in part of military capacity. And then there is a discussion about, there certainly is a discussion about power projection for protecting strategic lines of communication, energy routes, and all of that. Um, of course, the most energetic uh, sup, you know, proponents of that kind of concept come from largely from the Navy. And so you will get Navy analysts who write about uh, the need for China to develop genuine blue-water navy capabilities that have the capacity to protect China's interests overseas, uh, protect its slocks its and all the rest of it. My view is that this, this issue has not become a question of national policy. Uh, they haven't made a decision that we're going to develop a, a deep-water, blue-water navy that has that kind of expeditionary capacity. Um, it's it's confront, It confronts a whole range of issues um, about the feasibility of it, uh, about the political signals that it would send. So there's a lot of different types of debate over this still. I mean, I guess it is a debate then on that issue within within China. So we haven't, and this is still, we haven't yet seen how this is going to play out. I mean, they're developing a aircraft carrier. They may acquire more aircraft carriers. Uh, the capacity of such a platform to really serve that blue water uh, expeditionary uh, force capability is is in my view quite questionable, so it's not necessarily a, a validation of their their need to of, of their acquiring that capability.
1: Michael used the term "neo," which is non-combatant evacuation oh, operations. <laughs> <laughs> Hugh Reinsteff, T H I S for diplomats. There's been one country left out of this discussion so far: in, in Russia, uh, China's relations to new. A leadership's relations with Russia and Putin's re-immersion uh, as the leader of Russia, uh, recently the uh, Syrian ambassador left here, is stationed here, and went to Beijing, and as soon as he went to Beijing, China sent an envoy to Syria. So how about Russia's uh, place in the new Congress's or in the new leadership's mind? Well, russia 's is the actor in search of a role these days. Um, since their d- diminishment as a great power in the 90s, um, Russia has really receded from the region in many ways. The arms sales to China tapered off during the course of the 90s. There's talk now of a new purchase of SU-35s by China that might reinvigorate their arms trade. Um, And it's pretty clear that Russia put a lot of pressure on China for the Syrian vetoes at Geneva and in New York um, recently. Uh, It was characterized to me that the U.S. is important and its views are important, but Russia made its views very urgent. And, and so the China acceded to this because they do want to have a cooperative relationship in the UN with Russia on issues where China does not want to yield to uh, the pressure from the other Perm 5 to support interventions and things like that, which are hard for China to swallow in light of its principled positions of many decades. Um, the Russians are going to be hosting the Vladivostok Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum meeting in September. Normally these are held in November, but they're afraid the local heating system won't work. <laughs> so they're planning... How
0: do you find these things
1: pl- <laughs> out? People come to me and say, would you write something about Russia? I say, what are you writing? Um, and, uh, and, 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 this is, uh, and so a lot of Russians are, are now actively trying to say, okay, when we host this meeting, what are we going to say? What are we going to do? What's our relevance? And so there's a lot of churning that's taking place now in anticipation of that that meeting. Obviously, President Obama will not be going to that meeting because it'll be the middle of our hot campaign season here. And so it's it, it probably will get less attention in American media than would normally be the case, albeit that APEC gets very small amounts of attention under the best of circumstances. Thank Thanks. was a question in the middle way, young lady. Yes. Uh, Lu Sun from uh, Johns Hopkins says, My question is actually more related to NPC itself. we are definitely seeing some changes of the way delegates participate right now. They're more, like, um, active, and they they like to uh, argue their, their own perspective as opposed to, like, a decade or two decades ago, they just listen to whatever the pr- premier is presenting. So my question is... Um, mainly towards uh, Douglas fall. What do you think of um, the role of NPC will involving the future Chinese political system? Well, actually, I w- I'd be interested to hear what Yukon Huang has to say about that because he he studies consequences more than appearances, and I, I'm more in the world of appearances. Um, we've we've watched over the last, uh, la- I guess, the last 15 years. There's been a steady accretion of uh, forums for debate, access to media. And a sense of of some liveliness in the NPC that was not present in earlier years, at least not that we were aware of in earlier years. Um, I think China is trying to market this as as a step toward a more democratic system, even though the votes are pretty predictable. Uh, um, The fact that before the vote they get to say some dissident things uh, is is certainly something we would welcome and hope to see more of. Uh, But I don't think but qualitatively, I think they still have a long way to go before they can really um, address tough issues the um, If you look at the de- delegation from Xinjiang and Tibet when they talked, it was all about very tough measures. It wasn't wrestling with the problems of of uh, native Uyghur people or native Tibetan people sort of getting educated and then not getting jobs or watching the benefits flow to immigrant and Chinese in their areas. Those are the kinds of issues that really should be thrashed out in that forum if they're going to address some of these uh, quite serious social and ethnic problems.
2: i, I just make two observations. Um, the bill that got the most attention, in, in some ways, within China and externally in China, was the bill that dealt with the, trim, uh, the treatment of, of those who are accused of state crimes. And there was a fair amount of debate about uh, whether or not <coughs> those who are accused of crimes can be locked up in unknown places, how much rights do we have, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the final version of the bill which came out was pretty tough on this. And this is disappointed a fair number of people. I mentioned it only because in terms of the number of people who voted against the bill, very small percentage, but it was not like 1%. It's more like 8 or 9%. Now, 10 years ago, you would never have had that. It would always be 99% in favor. Nowadays, you have votes which are 90%, 91%. So something is changing in the sense that people are not uh, worried or scared about voting against something. But it doesn't mean that you're going to get 50% or 40 uh, much less 41%. It's still going to be in the 90s, but that's, that's changed. The second thing, you'll see it in one-job statement. It's much more explicit endorsement in saying there's a role for what I would call civil organizations, uh, NGOs of the Chinese form. There's no such things, a true NGO in China, but all NGOs are have to be affiliated with a government institution. Nevertheless, I think the, the powers to be feel that the NPC is a forum for more voices to be heard coming through non-state or non-organized ways in civil society institutions. So you have a lot more discussion of what I call interesting things. There are even discussions about whether shark fin soup should be taken off the course of the menu, and the protection of monkeys and citron is a hot issue. So these kinds of issues don't show up in Premier's one statement, but they show up in, the, in the, the reporting, the consequences of the debate, what's going on, and I think it's different from what it would have been 10 years ago.
1: My memory of monkeys in Sichuan would not lead me in favor of a <laughs> pro- <laughs> protection of them. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: yes, I'm Um But I wanted to just add, you can reminded me, uh, during the NPC, I was invited to appear on Chinese television three times and comment uh, at, a, at a pretty prominent hour of the day on what was going on. And I particularly addressed this uh, the legalized uh, Uninformed detention of, of suspects, Article 72 of the draft law. And I was allowed to, to go on in some detail saying the defects of this law and how it should be addressed with no interruption. And on, other, on the other two occasions as well, I was. So there's a kind of greater freedom for us big noses to stick our faces into Chinese <laughs> affairs. Uh,
0: was it, on live? These,
1: was it, it was live? live, yeah, live feed. Yeah. So, questions? Way in the back. Hi, I'm Aida Bibart from the FDIC um, this question is for Yukon. Earlier you were talking about um, inflation and interest rates. So I was just wondering if you foresee wealth management products becoming a significant problem in the near future since um, they do offer significantly higher interest rates and banks are having trouble keeping up with them since they are so highly mobile.
2: You, you make an interesting observation that um, most of the debate or focus on interest rates and banking in China um, doesn't get into the question of, of the variety of wealth management products which, are, which have come up in the last several years. So the focus on the passbook savings rate being controlled at 3%, the government argues in fact we liberalized. They would say we've liberalized interest rates because you can get higher interest rates by going through wealth management products. Now, the problem is that what I would call regulated or uh, fairly uh, secure or uh, risk-free wealth management products put out by the big banks don't really pay a lot more. They may pay a tenth of a percent or half a percent or at most one percent more, but it's available. But there are many other products out there put out by what I would call the unregulated financial sector. And they may pay five, six, seven. In some cases, they're telling you they'll give you 10 or 15% returns. Now, this is feeding into an informal banking system, which is what you read about. The money is being on land, and, and, and these institutions are gathering lots of deposits. So what I would say about wealth products is that there is an aspect of it which is quite good. It's a way of liberalizing the interest rate structure. But there's also an aspect of what I call an unregulated, informal, risky process going on in China, and the government is vulnerable in the sense of trying to figure out how to deal with this. It, it is a potential vulnerability in the system, but it's also a potential strength in the system in trying to liberalize the financial sector. Yes.
1: Okay, we have time for one more question, or if, the, if not, we'll say no hands go up. Okay. All right, over here on the left. This will be the last one.
2: My name is Ting I'm not affiliated. Uh, is China transparent enough
1: Transparent, uh, yeah. politically, militarily, yeah. economically, everything. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to give an answer on transparency and military?
0: <laughs> well, I, I guess I can only address on the on the defense side. I mean, I have opinions on the other issues as well, but. I think that 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 certainly is the view of the the U.S. government doesn't believe that China is transparent enough. And I think what it means by that is it wants to know ultimately uh, what is China's um, strategy and its doctrine behind the kinds of capabilities that it is in fact acquiring uh, in the Asia Pacific. What is the explicit intention of these capabilities? Uh, because they directly affect the ability of the U.S. to operate in the region. Um, and my own view is that I think actually it's pretty – you can get a pretty good understanding of what it is that the, the, the Chinese um, uh, intentions are and the strategy is behind what they're doing militarily in the Asia-Pacific, at least, in the Western Pacific, and that it's, it's not really a big secret. Uh, what they're what they're doing and if you if you read enough of the chinese um writings on this, <coughs> both military newspapers and others you you can get in of uh, documents of one sort or another you can get a pretty clear understanding of it so in that area, I would say that china is is probably it's probably as as transparent as it's going to get for some time and that and that we probably know enough about it. Um, I think the U.S. position on it is a little bit disingenuous, frankly.
2: (coughs) Let let me respond to your comment in a slightly different way. Suppose you ask the Chinese the same question about the United
1: States.
2: (laughs) And I want to simplify it dramatically by saying the following, because I've been looking and watching and working on China for many, many, you know, more than a decade and a half now. The Chinese processes are not transparent, but their outcomes are. You don't have the (laughs) foggiest idea of what's going on, but when the outcome comes out, it's fairly clear. And it's fairly simple, and it's fairly well understood. Now, you're sitting in China, you look at the United States, what you see is that the process in the United States is very transparent, but the outcome is not. (laughs) (laughs) You ask people, what is your view? What is the American view on their budget? What is the American view about financial regulation? What is the American view about health reform? And I mean, you'd be hard pressed to give an answer. But you know, the process is transparent. So, to me, the question of transparency is, is you know, in the eyes of the beholder. There,
1: <laughs> Ambassador Stapleton Roy has on occasion said that um, sometimes your policies, your, your your politics, can be good and your po- policies bad. And sometimes your politics can be bad and your policy outcomes good. I guess he's saying the same thing in his own way. Um, I want to thank you all for staying with us this morning and for uh, joining in the Q&A. Come back again soon, please. Thank you.